Good morning, everyone. So, as Pete just said, the reading today is from Esther chapter 3 to the end of Esther chapter 4. After these events, King Xerxes honoured Harman, summoned Palandatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honour higher than, higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Harman, for the king had co commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Harman about it to see whether Mordecai's behaviour would be tolerated, for he had told them that he was a Jew. When Harman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Harman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the Pur, that is, the lot, was cast in the presence of Harman to select a day and month, and the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Harman said to King Xerxes, there is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's clause. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Harman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Harman, and do with the people as you please. Then, on the thirteenth day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Harman's orders to the king's satraps the governors of all the various provinces and nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued into the citadel of Susa. The king and Harman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. When Mordecai learnt of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was a great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, and he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned 
Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Harman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show it to Esther and explain it to her, and he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they are to be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are the, in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that, that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went out and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we want to thank you so much for giving us your word that is uh, life to us. Father, we pray that uh, now as we uh, uh, focus on your word, that by your word and spirit, that you would be uh, helping us to think more clearly about who you are, how you're at work in our world, and the confidence that we can have in you, that we would be people who would be bold uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. A couple of years ago, outside a church in England, I saw some signs which were uh, presenting a message to the general public and to tourists like myself. And the sign said this, help keep this beautiful church alive. It costs £1,000 a day to stay open. We need your help now. Help us to save the church, which I thought was a bit ironic because, in fact, isn't it the church which is supposed to save the general public through preaching the gospel, not the reverse? However, I thought about that church building as a sort of a symbol because for many people that old crumbling church building symbolises their view of us as Christians. Because for some non-Christians, people like you and me, we are, we are like historic relics, uh, people who belong to a different era, people whose beliefs have no real place in the 21st century. And with uh, 
fewer people each year calling themselves Christians, then very soon, if you look at the mathematics, we will no longer exist. Or so they hope. And then there are those who would like to speed up our extinction uh, by opposing and even ridiculing our message. Uh, like one uh, popular um, commentator in an Australian newspaper who described Christians as believing in, and I quote, a cosmic Jewish zombie who is his own father and can make you live forever if you dot, 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 telepathically tell him that uh, you can accept him as your master so long as, so that he can remove an evil force from your soul. Thanks, Fitzy. And uh, <clears throat> we see there that's a kind of view that you can perhaps uh, ridicule the gospel out of existence. Of course, there are places and times when opposition to God's people can be very physical. Uh, in fact, the Old Testament book of Esther uh, describes an event in history, uh, an attempt to eradicate God's people uh, from the face of the earth. Uh, the setting was the 5th century BC, uh, where, as we saw last week in Esther chapters 1 and 2, the dominant world power was Persia, uh, which was ruled at the time by uh, King Xerxes. And we saw how a young Jewish woman had come to be queen of Persia and how her cousin, uh, Mordecai, had foiled a plot to assassinate the king. And yet as we come to chapter 3 of Esther, which you might want to have open in your Bibles, and there is an outline there for you as well, as we come to chapter 3, it is now the life of Mordecai and indeed the lives of all of God's people uh, which are under threat. How so? Well, it starts with a petty issue uh, with a man by the name of Haman. Uh, let's pick it up at verse 1. After these events, King Xerxes honoured Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honour higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour. Now, why is that? Why would Esther's cousin Mordecai, why would he not kneel down and pay honour to Haman? Sometimes it is wrong to kneel down to someone, isn't it? Or to kneel down to an object uh, like, uh, like Daniel and his friends when they uh, refused to uh, bow down to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, or uh, early Christians uh, not bowing down to statues of Caesar as God. But in Persian culture, as in many cultures uh, even today, uh, to kneel down or to bow down to someone is, is simply a matter of a cultural matter of showing respect to a person because of their position. Now, Haman 
may not have been worthy of respect, uh, which may, uh, interestingly, in verse 2, explain why the king had to issue a command, uh, commanding people to bow down to him. But Mordecai's refusal to honour Haman is probably deeper than that. For how is Haman described? In verse 1, he is Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. He's not Persian, is he? He's actually an Agagite. And you think to yourself, well, what on earth is an Agagite? Fair enough. Uh, Let me explain. Many generations earlier, in fact, if you go back to Exodus chapter 17, uh, after uh, Israel had fled from Egypt, uh, Israel was attacked uh, by a people um, who were known as the Amalekites. And because of that, God's judgment was, uh, was upon the Amalekites. Uh, later on in history, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15, God commanded Israel's king, who was King Saul, uh, to attack and to destroy the Amalekites as his judgment upon them uh, for what they had done to Israel. And yet instead of killing uh, the Amalekite king, uh, as God had commanded, uh, Saul took him alive, as he did also uh, much of their livestock as plunder. What is this bleating of sheep in my ears, rebuked the prophet Samuel, as the Lord rejected Saul as king for his failure uh, to complete God's command. That Amalekite king, who Saul did not destroy, uh, was the king Agag. Haman was a descendant of Agag. Just as in uh, chapter 2, verse 5, which we saw last week, Mordecai is a descendant of Kish, who was the father of Saul. So there is history in this relationship. But this is not just a generational feud between two nations of peoples. No, uh, in the Exodus, God had saved Israel. God had brought them out of their slavery in Egypt and in so doing, God had not only saved Israel, but he had created for himself a people, a people of his very own, the nation of Israel, whom the Amalekites tried to destroy. And so for Mordecai to fall on his knees to a descendant of King Agag was a compromise too far. And this history is not lost on Haman either. Um, Take a look at verse 3. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behaviour would be tolerated, for he had told them that he was a a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour, he was enraged, yet having learnt who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole of the kingdom of Xerxes. 
which was the whole of the known world from uh, modern-day Pakistan through to North Africa and everything in between. One of the standout issues in Esther is the use of the word Jews uh, to in order to describe God's people. Um, it occurs in Esther uh, 40 times, which is more than uh, the whole of the rest of the Old Testament put together. And one reason for that is that the term Jew only originated after the kingdom of Judah had been, um, had been defeated uh, in 597 BC by the Babylonians and its people had been uh, taken into exile. Uh, it, and it came to describe any person of Israelite descent who considered Judah to be their homeland. Uh, whether they were people who by this stage in history had uh, returned from exile back to Judah, back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple, or whether they were amongst the communities of God's people that were scattered throughout uh, the Persian Empire. Mordecai is a Jew. And in verse 10, Haman is described as being the enemy of the Jews. A description of him that's used five times throughout the book of Esther. See, um, for Haman, it's not just that Mordecai was a guy who failed to pay him respect. No, Haman actually hates God's people. He wants them to no longer exist. And so in verses 7 through to 11, he escalates the matter. Uh, first, by selecting a day for the slaughter of the Jews to take place. Now, how does he choose? Have a look at verse 7. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, they cast the pur. Important word that. They cast the pur. It's a Persian word, a Persian word, and it means the lot. They cast the lot in the presence of Haman to select a day and a month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. The pur, meaning the lot, was cast. Now, sometimes in the Bible, God's people did make decisions by casting lots or drawing a lot. Um, it's how they divided up the land of Canaan um, uh, amongst the, the various the, the tribes of Israel. And perhaps may explain why even today parcels of land are referred to as an allotment. Um, but, but amongst God's people... It's not, just like, it's not like just um, playing the lottery or rolling the dice. Uh, no, it, it was actually God's way of revealing his will, which we see also in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 1, in order to decide who would replace Judas as an apostle. Uh, the apostles, the, the other 11 apostles, prayed about the matter and then, they, um, and then they cast lots for God to reveal uh, his choice of person to be the 12th apostle. It turned out to be Matthias, 
um, sometimes referred to as the patron saint of lotteries as a result of that, I kid you. Uh, yet Haman uh, has no such faith in God. Uh, for him, this uh, casting the purr, casting the lot, it's, it's, just a, it's a very vague pagan notion that there is uh, unseen uh, cosmic powers at work in the world and that some days are luckier than others. So he chose the date by casting the lot. That's step one. Step two is to take the matter to King Xerxes, where in verses 8 through to 11, there is a cash-for-carnage deal on the table. 10,000 talents of silver he will give in exchange for an edict to destroy an unnamed race of people. He doesn't tell the king who the, the, the people are. But this unnamed race of people uh, who they've got these different customs, they don't always obey the king's laws and, and quite frankly, um, their existence is not in the best interests of the king. 10,000 talents. That is a mountain of silver. Um, 345 metric tonnes to be precise and I don't know what it was worth then, but I checked the markets yesterday and it was silver on the Australian market yesterday would have been worth $380 million. Whatever the case, Haman had access to an enormous amount of wealth, which the king appears to reject, but which may be just for show, because he agrees to the ethnic cleansing without even asking who these people are. So in verses 12 to 13, the edict is dispatched throughout the empire to destroy, kill and annihilate every single Jew, young or old, man or woman, and take all of their possessions as plunder. And in verse 15, as the king with his mate Haman, uh, celebrate with a drink. The people on the streets of Susa are bewildered, absolutely astonished, shocked at this edict. And no one more so perhaps than Mordecai himself. And as the couriers arrived in communities throughout the empire, there was great mourning there was weeping, there was wailing, there was desperation and great sadness and lamentation uh, from all of God's people, the Jews. So where is God in all of this? 1,400 years ago, um, or before then, um, approximately, in a place about 240 kilometres southwest of Susa, uh, God called a young man named Abram. And he called on Abraham to set out on, on a journey and he made some promises to him. What did God promise Abram? Well, we see in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 that God made 
promises to Abraham of a, a people, a land and a blessing. And the fulfilment of those promises is a story of the Old Testament and indeed the Bible as a whole. A people, a land and a blessing. So what's happening? Is that all going to end now? Are the people annihilated? Or would God be faithful to his promises? Uh, Friends, the book of Esther is a book which is full of strange coincidences and ironic reversals. Ironic reversals for just as Haman cast the lot to get his lucky day, he is about to discover that there really is, there really is an unseen hand at work in our world. But it's not the hand that he was banking on. Because one of the people whom he hates, one of the people whom he wants to destroy, one of the people whom he has just bribed the king to wipe off the face of the planet, has unbeknownst to him been appointed by God as queen. But Esther knows nothing about what has happened until in chapter 4, verse 8, Mordecai is able to supply her with a copy of the edict. But stopping this genocide is not going to be easy for Esther, at least humanly speaking, because in verses 10 to 11, she points out to Mordecai that not even the queen can approach the king whenever she wants to do so. He hasn't even seen her for the last 30 days. And in fact, if anyone approaches the king and the king's not interested, that person can be put to death. So the way forward is not clear for Esther, but it's pretty clear for Mordecai. Chapter 4, verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are the king's, in the king's house, you alone of all Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will come from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. There's not a whole lot of God talk in the book of Esther. In fact, there's none. But here we catch, don't we, a glimpse of Mordecai's faith? For he's convinced that God's promise uh, will not fail, that God will rescue his people, regardless of how Esther responds. And yet he puts it to her that becoming queen was not just a matter of blind fate, of meaningless luck, but rather it was the hidden hand of God. And saving God's people may be the very reason that she has been made queen. And so in verse 16, she agrees to take the matter to the king regardless of the cost to her. With courage, uh, she says, if I perish, then I perish. Because it's the right thing to do. Uh, Friends, 
there are many Hamans in our world, in our world today. Uh, maybe not so rich and powerful or violent as he was. But there are many people who would prefer uh, for Christians no longer to be tolerated, for Christians to no longer be seen as being actually a, a, a valued uh, and a useful um, uh, people within our world and within our society. Uh, there are people who uh, they would wish that there would come a time when the gospel of Jesus would be phased out of existence, that there would no longer be any Christians in the world, when they are no longer reminded of the God to whom they owe their existence and the God from whom they need forgiveness. There is a reason, for example, why there are people who wage war against scripture being taught in schools. They would prefer that the next generation did not learn about, did not know, did not believe in the God of the Bible. And yet throughout the ages, despite social engineering and despite sometimes terrible physical oppression, the gospel of Jesus continues to spread and the kingdom of God continues to grow. More and more people belong to God's people. The sign on that crumbling church building uh, was begging the tourists to save the church. But that's actually not the true symbol of the Christian church. I actually found a better symbol of the Christian church when I walked a few blocks away from that church building and there, there was a wall and there was a plaque on that wall uh, which was commemorating three Christian men who in 1556 in that very town uh, were executed um, for their faith in Jesus. Executed by fire. Why? Why did their enemies hate them so much that they needed to kill them. It was to eradicate their testimony about the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Didn't work, did it? In fact, it never has worked. It never will work, even if we lose our lives. Because God is always faithful to his promises. God is always building his kingdom. Do you remember what the Lord Jesus once promised when Peter confirmed his faith that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God? He said to Peter, I will build my church. I will build it. And the gates of Hades will never overcome it. Never overcome it. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you that you are indeed so very much at work in the world. That despite, despite the opposition from the evil one, uh, that your kingdom continues to grow as your gospel continues to be preached. We pray that we would be confident of that and that despite whatever opposition that we might face, 
that we would remain faithful to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray for its continued spread throughout the world that many, many more people would come to know Jesus as their King. Amen.